welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm your host, Terry Finneman, guiding you through our own drafts of history. This episode is sponsored by the Department of Communication Studies at California State University, Sacramento. The department provides quality instruction for more than 500 undergraduate and graduate majors in the areas of journalism, film studies, public relations, and communication studies. Sacramento State is the fourth most diverse university in the Western United States, serving more than 31,000 students from the capital of California. Known as the Chronicler of AIDS, Randy Schultz dedicated much of his journalism career to providing coverage of the HIV-AIDS crisis in the United States in the 1980s and 1990s. As a national reporter on AIDS for the San Francisco Chronicle, he played a groundbreaking role as an openly gay journalist working in mainstream media. In 1982, he wrote a story headlined, The Strange Deadly Diseases That Strike Gay Men, having little idea at the time of the role he was about to play with this issue, or that he would meet his own death the same way. Throughout his career, he inspired a wide range of emotions, from great admiration and affinity to deep disgust and loathing for his reporting on issues of concern to the gay community. Our guest today, Andrew Stoner, delves into all of this in his new book, The Journalist of Castro Street, The Life of Randy Schultz. Andrew, welcome to the show. Why did you want to do this biography of Randy Schultz? Well, as a journalist uh, or a tra- journalist in training, he was obviously somebody I was familiar with. But also as a, a gay person, I was very concerned about the possibility of that causing my sexual orientation, causing me to not be able to work in journalism or mass communication. So I was very atten- attuned into uh, Randy's career from an early point. And uh, uh, he was making breakthroughs that were pretty important to me personally and also to many others. So talking about his career, he had quite an impactful career uh, for the limited time that he had before his death at age 42. Let's start out discussing his early years when he worked for The Advocate. Tell us about the history of that publication and where it was at when he arrived there. Well, The Advocate at that time was probably best described as a bit of a bar rag. It still had a lot of advertising for adult services and films and massage and alcohol and bars. And it, when it first started, actually, the it was on newsprint. Uh, by the time Randy joined The Advocate, it was had transitioned to um, heavier stock or magazine stock. But it was still pretty much a um, bar magazine, uh, one that was sent out in plain brown envelopes and he made a joke one time, actually, that he couldn't really send his clips to anybody because on the back there might be some, you know, really um, unusual ad from the personals column that he wouldn't want someone to see. So, um, and it had moved when he joined the advocate from San Francisco and Los Angeles to San Mateo. And that was a deliberate move by the publisher at the time, David Goodstein, who wanted to decouple the magazine from the what he perceived to be the gay liberation leadership in both San Francisco and Los Angeles. What kind of stories did Schultz write while there? He first started out, uh, curiously, they called him their, their Northwest correspondent. So he was responsible for covering uh, LGBT issues in uh, Oregon and Washington State. And uh, that's because 
he actually was stringing for them while he was still a student at the University of Oregon. When he was hired then to join the staff full-time and moved to San Francisco, which he ended up having to move uh, there, but also work in San Mateo, he was a, what they called their national wire editor. But he, that did allow him some wonderful opportunities to travel. In fact, he covered the 1976 Democratic National Convention in New York and found the uh, gay caucus at that convention. I think it was three people. And uh, he also traveled extensively during the period where anti-discrimination ordinances were under assault in Miami-Dade and other places around the country by Anita Bryant and others. And uh, I wrote extensively about that effort in various cities across the United States. He also worked briefly for a TV station for KQED in San Francisco to cover the expanding gay community there. The unusualness of this assignment in the late 1970s received national attention. You note in your book that the news director at the time told the Associated Press that hiring a gay reporter was such an obvious thing. We should have done it two years ago. We were the first in the area, but I predict other stations will follow. You then note that other stations, in fact, did not follow this lead. Tell us more about this time. Why did the station make this decision? Uh, and tell us more about what Schultz covered and how it went. Well, the new director also said to me that he didn't think that they were making that big of a statement with hiring Schultz because they had him on a contract where he, they paid $75 per story that he would submit and that he was one of three field reporters that would contribute to a program called Newsroom, which was underwritten by a grant from the Ford Foundation. And KQED had an established anchor named Belva Davis who would introduce the stories and then bring the reporters on air to discuss them afterward, which was a, a wonderful opportunity for him to gain a lot of notoriety. But again, it was only $75 a story. Um, his colleagues that worked with him, one of the fellow reporters there told me that she was always amazed. He had a quiver full of story ideas from the gay community and sometimes would loan her some because he was just very good at what she called shaking the trees and getting stories to, to fall into his lap. And so um, it made sense from a journalism perspective in terms of it, there were a lot of stories to be told that weren't being told elsewhere. But it was, as you noted, something that wasn't followed by other media in San Francisco uh, for several more years. Schultz eventually ended up working at the San Francisco Chronicle. You note the editors began to understand that they could no longer ignore that, quote, gay people were a major political, economic, and social force in the community, end quote. Before we delve more into his time there, this question and then our prior discussion about the TV station makes me wonder... We're talking about the 1970s and 1980s here, but today, how many mainstream news outlets dedicate reporters to specifically cover the gay community? Do you know? Oh, I would think a few of any. Um, I'm not aware of beyond like the gay publications that are have a gay audience would would specialize in that way. We we of course now have major television, cable television, and network television anchors and and national reporters uh, who are openly gay. And one of the things that uh, it's interesting, one of the editors there looking back on this period uh, at the Chronicle told me that he thinks they erred a bit in that they viewed the gay community as kind of this one dimensional thing and that Randy Shields was the representation of that. And what they learned, I think, over time was that there were many 
layers and aspects to the gay community, most especially, for example, a lesbian perspective that Randy didn't represent hardly at all. And I think that was where some of the challenges Randy would run into in the gay community came from, because he was this unelected, unnominated leader in a mainstream situation. And, um, you know, there would be people would ask who, who appointed him our spokesperson. And so the editor I talked to suggested they may have erred by thinking in too uh, limited a fashion, but that also, and, and it also reflects Belva Davis and others told me that, that, uh, you know, they would uh, not limit black reporters to just covering black subjects by that time. So it, the, the idea of a, of a specialized beat like that is is unusual. Now, he was officially assigned to the city desk as a city-side reporter and did cover other topics, but uh, they readily admitted that that's how, the, how and why they recruited him. So returning to his time at the Chronicle, tell us more about the kinds of stories he reported there and his relationships with sources. Uh, as you were kind of just talking about, uh, you, you noted in your book that gay people in San Francisco had very strong opinions uh, about him and what he wrote. Tell us more about that. Yes, and I, I think that what you see over the course of his time there is that he actually had more support and, and more um, fans among heterosexual or gay ally readers than among gays themselves. I think the gay community was still trying to adjust to the idea of this mainstream light or this attention from a mainstream media source being paid to their issues. For example, uh, you know, Randy wrote a lot, um, a lot of important stories about um, gays and the kind of physical violence and crime that they might suffer in the streets of San Francisco or also you know, he had himself locked up one time in what they called the Queen's Tank at the San Francisco City Jail. So he did, you know, help shine light on some important issues like that. But um, he also, um, as we as we see as as the AIDS issue begins to emerge, um, is also raising important questions about the sexual activity or the sexual nature of the gay liberation movement at that point, which in its early years was really focused just on the sexual aspects of gay life as opposed to issues like housing, employment, or family, or marriage rights. Um, you know, you're talking about a group of people who've been set free, that their sexuality is no longer a criminal offense that could either cause them to be jailed or destroyed socially. And so there was a lot of people who celebrated the sexual aspect of gay liberation more than any other. And Randy was one of the early folks who began to question, is that all there is? You frequently mention in the book that he wanted to avoid being an advocate in his journalism, despite being close to the topics he was covering. However, there seems to be a number of examples where this line was crossed. What are your thoughts on this complicated role that he was in? I think that his desire to be a journalist as opposed to an advocate is is normal and and certainly would reflect his degree in journalism and the way journalism was taught as an objective pursuit in those days. But I think he clearly did not succeed. Um, and I would actually place him more in the line of an advocate in terms of using journalism to advance or, or advocate for issues that he thought were important. And he readily admits, for example, that he would time stories during the AIDS crisis to run on Thursday or Friday so that they might catch the attention of 
gay men before they went out for a weekend of, of fun and partying. You know, that's uh, timing your stories like that is is not something everybody would have thought of. I certainly didn't as a reporter. I turned them in as soon as they were done. But I think that he um, saw the power of journalism as a shining light and opening up people's eyes to things that were going on. And that he talks a lot in his diary and other places about if people just understood more, if they just knew more, that gay rights would advance a lot quicker. Um, I would love to have talked to him near the end of his life or even today about whether he thinks those views are actually true, because I think what the reality is, it, it just takes a very long time. Uh, the arch of uh, liberation is slow sometimes, and the rights of gay people have been you know, two steps forward, one step back at times. And I think that uh, his notion that journalism could move that along at a quicker pace is, is a bit naive on one level. You write about the significant psychological toll that writing about HIV and AIDS had on him. In 1989 alone, he wrote more than 60,000 words on this topic. How did this affect him and why did he keep going? Well, that is an extraordinary amount of uh, newsprint we're talking about for this. We're talking about news stories and columns in that one year, the you know the equivalent of a very large book. And I talked to his partner at the time, who told me that it was taking a toll because of he really did not have control of his alcohol use, and he was a daily uh, like to smoke marijuana every day. He was very convinced since he was in college that marijuana was something that was very helpful to him. And his partner told me, a gentleman by the name of Steve Newman, that that really was the end of their relationship because of Randy just kind of uh, coming home and and uh, getting blotto drunk every night or high. And that to watch someone of such talent do that to themselves was very difficult to um, be around. And he wasn't interested in that point in a career he re- or a, a cure for that or, or addressing it. He did eventually start going to AA meetings and stopped drinking, and then a, a year later stopped smoking as well. What did he think of other media outlets reporting on AIDS and issues of concern to the gay community? He was highly critical of all of his uh, counterparts um, at the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post. He openly gloated that the Chronicle uh far outpaced all of those publications and their coverage of, of the issue. Um, and I think to some degree, you could argue that that's true. He um, did keep up a more steady drumbeat than you see if you do a content analysis or any or even just a casual observation of those other major dailies. The one editor that he had at the Chronicle came to the Chronicle directly from the Chicago Tribune. And he noted that prior to going to San Francisco, he took the Chronicle by mail and was looking at uh, and said he found himself shocked at the number of front page articles that they were running about AIDS and even the issues of how AIDS was transmitted, um, you know, in terms of sexual contact between men. He said they'd run one article at the Chicago Tribune to that point, and it was back on page 15 and um, been turned in as a 20 or 30 inch story that got trimmed back to about 15 inches. He recalls, you know, things were very different, for example, at at the Chicago Tribune than what they were at the San Francisco Chronicle. So kind of expanding on that, you discuss in the book how Randy played an agenda-setting role. How do you think he helped educate other mainstream reporters on these issues? 
I think to the degree that he served as a spokesperson, uh, he was helpful in that sense. He often did Nightline, uh, This Week with David Brinkley. He was on the Larry King show, so he did go to mainstream media. He even did an episode of the Morton Downey Jr. show, which was an absolute disaster. Um, so he was seemingly interested in, in count intera- interacting. But what I found, though, for example, were that the emerging uh, gay journalists association um, were most dissatisfied with him because he viewed their work as less than his. He viewed, he seemed to have a bit of a, a snobbish attitude about if your work was appearing in, in a gay publication, then it wasn't the equal to, for example, a daily newspaper. And that's an interesting perspective to take, given that he came out of a gay paper. But I just don't think he felt that a gay publication had the respectability of, say, a, a daily newspaper. And he did use at one point a phrase that was uh, haunted him for many years. He referred to gay journalists as lavender fascists and as a result didn't have many friends in that uh, corner. Uh, probably had, again, more straight reporters were his friends than uh, were or gay reporters. You mentioned one of his appearances being a disaster. What do you mean by that? What happened? Uh, the, it's detailed in the book, but the Morton Downey Jr. show was one of the early shock t- TV shows that ran during the daytime, kind of a precursor or about the time of the Jerry Springer show taking off. And the audience was um, asking a lot of ridiculous questions about how AIDS was transmitted. And of course, a lot of discussion about quarantining all gay people as a means of arresting the spread of AIDS and uh, Schultz talks in his diary and elsewhere about uh, during the, the show's break, he told Downey, the host of the show, that you know either we lift the conversation to a higher level or he was going to leave. Um, and it, it, it's interesting that he agreed to that booking in the first place. He also talks about a, a radio interview in Los Angeles in which a caller expressed concern that a waiter, a gay waiter, could cause someone to have AIDS. And he, t- he was pretty embarrassed by having blown up on the air um, at that caller, calling them ignorant and, um, you know, losing his cool with someone. And I think that's telltale of the fact that despite his public claims to the contrary, I think he was um, at least partially or fully aware that he, he was already impacted by AIDS personally. One of the things that really struck me when I was uh, reading your book is I think in biography, it can be pretty easy to focus on just the positives of the person and trying to portray them in like the best light possible. And I feel like your book is just really honest about this complicated person and shining a light on on both the positive and the more complicated aspects of his life. And, and part of the way that you do that is you conducted a number of interviews uh, with his family and friends and co-workers and, and various sources for this book to paint this really detailed picture of who he was. So tell us more about this process and how you got all of these different people willing to talk to you for this book. Well, I should say that the um, book started as my dissertation uh, from my PhD at Colorado State University. And, and that was limited, though, to a uh, discussion of journalistic function and role on this idea about Walter Lippmann's ideas about, you know, social pol- uh, elites uh, helping others understand the world around them versus a more democratic approach to journalism. So the first thing the publishers uh, did with with that was to dump the literature review and all the 
theoretical discussions and say we need a much more personal treatment. And so I set out uh, to find as many of those folks as I could. I placed advertisements in at, in Oregon and in San Francisco and, and in Illinois, trying to find friends and colleagues that he'd known. I was fortunate that his two uh, living brothers, Gary and Randy, who are happen to be the oldest and youngest Schultz boys, uh, one living in Illinois and one in Michigan, were both very interested in participating in this, um, took it very seriously, and understood Randy's important role in the history of the LGBT community, but also in the history of journalism. And so I found their cooperation. I think they understood from me that um, I wasn't going to do, just as you described, you know, just a Pollyanna approach to him, that it was that a guy as complicated and as complex as Randy Schiltz, um, we needed to, to give him the same kind of review. He deserved the same kind of review that he probably would do if he were writing it himself. And so the there were many people, um, I would tell you that, that it's clearly a, a, a bifurcation. People who love Randy think he's wonderful and uh, were more than happy to share lots of stories about him and people who think he's awful and still um, hold resentment. And it's interesting out presenting the book in San Francisco and in San Diego, I've encountered audiences that way also where part of the audience think he's wonderful and part of the audience think he's a goat. And so it's uh, been a very interesting uh, exploration. And, you know, we have this interrupted life that ends at age 42. So we don't get to see what resolution might have occurred to some of the for some of these issues. And so this, um, as a result, I think you have to take the story up in the manner that I that I attempted to do. What was the tell us more about the reaction that you got from the family about your finished book? Um. I think they felt very much that it was a, um, a positive memorial. They both, uh, both of his brothers joined me in Aurora, Illinois, when we launched the book last summer and uh, brought probably 15 members of the Schiltz family who are very proud of Randy and all he achieved. Um, I had several of Randy's classmates from the Aurora West High School who were just about to celebrate their 50th class reunion Um and they wanted a copy of the book for the class reunion to share with members. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, it was fun. And um, it was interesting. As I spoke and talked about him, I could still sense there was still a lot of grief that his life had ended um, because they, you know, so much of life has transpired 25 years since he died. And, um, you know, that's a lot of life that uh, that doesn't we don't ever get to see and they don't ever get to experience. And I think they've missed him. Um, but his brothers, you know, are just uh, they, the Schultz family is an amazing group of people. They are sharp and witty and uh, sometimes acerbic and, uh, you know, very flinty in their comments. And so I, I could see why Randy was the way he was. And the brothers uh, were just um, very, very helpful and, and kind about all of this. Randy also had a substantial career as an author. He wrote what you refer to as the three most seminal books on the life and experience of gay Americans in the last years of the 20th century. There were The Mayor of Castro Street, The Life and Times of Harvey Milk, and The Band Played On, Politics, People, and the AIDS Epidemic, and Conduct Unbecoming, Gays and Lesbians in the U.S. Military. Let's go over each of these books. Tell us a little bit about each one and the impact of each. Well, the, the biography of Harvey Milk kind of fell in his lap. He had been reporting for KQED 
and the advocate about um, Harvey Milk's election to the Board of Supervisors and also his uh, murder along with Mayor Moscone in November of 1978. He also was there reporting on the riots that ensued following the very light sentence given to Dan White for the two murders. And so there were some folks in New York uh, with Christopher Street Magazine and others who really liked the work Randy was doing and, and offered him a small advance and uh, to write the biography of, of Harvey Milk. And of course, all of the work he had done at the uh, as a reporter was very helpful to making that come together. Although the, those were lean years because it's before he joined the Chronicle. And so uh, they were, as I mentioned, the, the KQED job only paid $75 a story. So he was patching together the advance along with some unemployment compensation and all sorts of help from his brother, Gary, to uh, kind of make it in those years. And the book was a, was a marginal success. It was optioned by Warner Brothers, who never made a film out of it. The film that was made um, and, and won an Oscar for screenplay in 2009 was a separate production, not based entirely on his book. And I talked to the people involved with that, and they had to retrace Randy's steps because Warner's has never decided to go ahead with a, a film version of that. But the movie Milk in 2009 is is probably about as close a following of Randy's book as you can get. The uh, Obviously, the book most people know him best for is And the Band Played On from October of 1987. And uh, there's so much to say about that book. It's um, still worth a read, and I recommend people to go look and skip the clinical parts because they're very outdated. But the story that Randy tells about how this epidemic begins to take over the gay community is is still very compelling and, and, and a sorrowful read at times. And um, the book is controversial because of the patient zero aspects of it, but the the work itself and the history that it creates uh, for us about that time period is irreplaceable and still one of the Time magazine listed as one of the 100 best books of, of nonfiction of all time, and it's a highly recommended reading. His last book, uh, Conduct Unbecoming, as we know, was being finished as AIDS was overtaking his own life. And so the tour in support of that book were quite limited. It came out in 1993, a year before he died. It's really, by the way, the only representation of women. It's the only chance he was able to have a feminist voice at all because women were a very strong target for the military's efforts to drum gays out of the military. And the women that suffered through that were particularly vulnerable because they would threaten custody of their children, for example, unless they disclosed their homosexuality or that of other women. And so Randy spent a lot of time listening to the stories of female service members who had really suffered a lot of the brunt of the of the gay uh, ban that the U.S. military had prior to the enactment of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and then, of course, prior to the overall lift of all ban. But that uh, book is another important piece because we know in the 1992 presidential election, uh, Bill Clinton had made the promise that he'd lift the ban. And, uh, you know, we get don't ask, don't tell as a compromise after that. And uh, that issue, you know, percolated all the way up through 2011 when President Obama eliminated that policy and allowed gays to serve openly. 
So you touched on the patient zero controversy uh, that was part of and the band played on. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with that, uh, give us a little bit more background on that incident and what lessons journalists today should take away from this. Well, depending on your perspective, it's either a storytelling element used effectively or it's a amazingly uh, painful and sad character assassination of a person who was already deceased and really couldn't defend themselves. Patient Zero is a gentleman by the name of Gaetan Dugas, who was a flight attendant for Air Canada. Uh, he was a um, French-Canadian fellow that had been adopted by a family in, in Quebec and uh, was a, a gay man in that era, um, traveled widely in Europe and the United States and North America and kept a very um, active sex life. In those days, a black book, you know, as opposed to a, a phone and um, was one of the people who were included in a cluster study done in Los Angeles about um, gay men who were coming down with some pretty exotic um, illnesses that reflected they had a compromised immune system, things like Carposis sarcoma, cancer, skin cancer, or pneumocystis pneumonia, and other things. And so he cooperated with a cluster study done and um, all of the participants in that study were listed as, for example, if they were from Los Angeles, they were LA1 or LA2 in order to preserve confidentiality. He was listed as patient O for outside Los Angeles. Um, Schiltz either knowingly or unknowingly incorrectly interpreted that to mean that he was patient zero, that he was at the center of a cluster. And what we know now, of course, is that any person could be at the center of any cluster if you draw a person at the center and then connect out all the people that they've had sex with or sexual contact with then the 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 cluster can um, put anyone really at the center it's it's a far more complicated concept than that but Schiltz tracked down Dugas name and used it in the book and used uh, his struggle with he's being told to not have sex anymore. He doesn't understand because he has cancer at that time, KS, which is not communicable. He's not understanding why he should uh, curtail his sex life and, and doesn't. Um, but Degas at the same time is also highly cooperative with, with uh, health investigators. He goes to the CDC and gives a blood sample. And that sample, by the way, in 2016, his blood is tested and it's proven that the strain of HIV that he was carrying was not the first strain to come to the United States, that HIV was actually probably present in 1967 when Dugas was just a little boy in Canada and would, could not have brought AIDS to America, which was actually the headline the New York Post decided to run, which was the man who brought AIDS to America. And that was the marketing effort of Schultz's book to sell it, was that there was, that he had found the source or that he had centered or uh, focused in on how we got to the start of AIDS in North America and answered that why question that many people had. And turns out it's very, it's a very flawed uh, bit of research. It's a flawed story. We also don't get the benefit of Schultz, you know, dies within uh, years of that coming out, a very short time after that. And so we don't, he never gets a chance to revisit the issue. So as a result, you have people who have rightly been upset that he maybe unfairly characterized Gaetan Dugas 
as some sort of typhoid Mary of the gay community um, when his actions were probably not that much different than a lot of gay people in the 70s and 80s, just that Randy had a lot of information based on Dugas' cooperation to base a, a story that helped move the the dialogue or the narrative about the AIDS crisis. So Randy died of AIDS himself in 1994 at age 42 and was described by the San Francisco Chronicle as the pioneer in coverage of AIDS. Overall, how would you summarize his legacy? I think uh, the AIDS summary is is accurate, but I would also could think that he is a important figure to the advancement of gay people and as the gay rights movement moved on from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I think his work about the the life and, and, and effort of Harvey Milk and about the gay community's response to AIDS and, and also this whole issue of gays in the military was really just a gays in the workplace issue. It just happened to be military. The whole notion of how are the rest of us go, or how is the rest of the society going to interact and deal with gay people? Are they going to be allowed to be in the workplace? And this leads, of course, to broader issues such as housing and, and, and marriage rights and parent parental rights and things like that. So he really was uh, instrumental in, covering how the gay liberation movement moved on beyond sexual freedom to to broader issues. I would point out it was interesting, my research found from his family and others, that he was looking into issues of child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church and other organizations as a next book idea. And, um, of course, he died before he could pursue that. But if we think about the issues that have transpired since 1994 on that, he really was on the cutting edge of that issue as well. So I think his, I say all that to make the point that I think his, he's an outstanding journalist who just simply understood those important things that were coming next and really had his finger on the pulse of what readers and, and the society needed and or wanted to know about. So I, I think as a journalist, we should also um, hold him in high regard. In 1990, the Association of LGBTQ Journalists formed in San Francisco. What impact do you think this group has had in terms of being a voice for LGBTQ journalists and for broader gay rights issues now that Randy is no longer here? I think they play a very important role. Uh, first and foremost, their their role was always one of support because um, there aren't still a large number of gay people in newsrooms across the United States. There are some, but it's still a bit of an isolating uh, uh, position. And I think that the issues and stories that they can help bring and the perspectives are the, are, are the equal to what women bring, to what other minority groups bring. We see, of course, we've had a large experience with African-American participation in journalism since the 70s, but we certainly uh, are still struggling, for example, to get more uh, Latinx folks voices into the newsroom. So I think their ability to ask the interesting questions, to bring new perspectives are are extremely valuable. I, I think that Randy would have hopefully evolved uh, away from his ideas that they were um, somehow, uh, that their role was purely adv- advocacy as opposed to journalism um, and objective reporting. Um, and I think that the whole, I think maybe would have been able to walk back phrases like lavender fascists and, and, and gained, hopefully, I, hope, I would think, a new respect for the role and the contribution gay journalists are making now. 
And our last question of every show is, why does journalism history matter? Well, first of all, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> journalism, of course, they used to say is the first draft of history. But uh, I just, uh, I have to tell you, I, I'm one of these guys who just digs uh, looking at how stories were reported, how writing styles have changed, how processes have changed, the interaction between journalists and official sources, and just the fact that we've moved beyond just official sources and bring in all sorts of sometimes less powerful and less known voices. Um, it's kind of, as an old newspaper guy, I started as a newspaper reporter. I'm as distressed as everyone else to see newspapers going through the transition that they're, they're going through, but I'm excited for the opportunities that still exist. Um, I do battle with, with, concepts of false or fake news as a professor with my students um, because I think it undermines the legitimacy of the media and the importance of it. And if ever we lived in a time where journalists are playing an important role in history, we're doing it right now because we see other branches or functions of society just are not operating correctly or not even willing to take up their constitutional or statutory authority. So we see journalists filling an important role. and They always have, really. And um doesn't mean they were well-liked. I can remember phones being hung up on me when I was a reporter. And I can re I tell students, you know, don't become a reporter to become popular. But, uh, but you might just be a part of history and certainly beyond being a witness, um, a, a record keeper for the history that transpires. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. And an additional thanks to our sponsor, the Department of Communication Studies at California State University, Sacramento, and to Taylor and Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Finneman, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck. Good luck.